Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the evening of Wednesday the 18th of January 1928 and although the summer sun is sinking behind the Victorian Alps, probationary Methodist minister Ronald Griggs is still feeling the heat. It's two weeks since his young wife Ethel died suddenly in his Omeo parsonage, her mysterious passing adding a darker hue to rumours long swirling in this tight-knit mountain community. Talk, he's been committing adultery with Lottie Condon. Now, in the church at the Walnuts, some 20 miles southeast of Omeo, the district's Methodist committee is demanding answers. Is it true that Ronald betrayed his wife, betrayed his church and betrayed his God? Ronald vehemently denies that he and Lottie were, are, anything but friends. So, he refuses to resign. Ronald hasn't sinned, so much as he's being sinned against with all these terrible slanders. The young preacher has a way with words, but his best defence actually stands beside him. John Condon, wealthy grazier, Methodist stalwart and Lottie's father. His family helped build this district and every man here has known him for years or, in some cases, their whole lives. John is staunch in his defence of Ronald and if the father of the preacher's alleged lover doesn't believe the allegations, then why should anyone else give such shameful rumours any more of their time? John's even willing to put the Condon reputation and their religious standing on the line, saying, quote, If this man is wronged and turned out, I and the whole of my family will withdraw from the church. Faced with this, the Methodist Committee have only the last resort of defrocking Ronald Griggs via a public church trial, and the chairman rules there simply aren't grounds for that. 
Without evidence to support the allegations, the matter is closed. Ronald is to remain a probationary minister entitled to wear his church collar. Even so, many of his flock say they won't attend any more of his services. This tense meeting over, Ronald steps out into the summer evening and is confronted by Omeo's uniformed police constable, Keith McMillan. Ronald knows him. In fact, he's written to Constable McMillan earlier this very day to ask for an official inquiry into Ethel's death. Standing next to him is a hulking figure in a three-piece suit and a hat. This man's a full foot taller than Ronald and more than 100 pounds heavier. Dark hair, big round face, strange little waxed moustache. Detective Sergeant Daniel Mulfay of Melbourne's CIB. His size means he's one of the big men in the Victorian police force. But Detective Sergeant Mulfay's reputation is every bit as towering. He's chased, arrested, interviewed and charged hundreds of criminals, right up to that murderous weasel, Squizzy Taylor, who got his comeuppance in Carlton just three months ago. Yet if Ronald is intimidated, he doesn't show it. Detective Sergeant Mulfay says, quote, I've been sent up here to make inquiries into the rumours which are in circulation concerning the death of your wife. We can't talk here. Will you come to Swifts Creek Police Station with us? Ronald says he will. After all, he has nothing to hide. At Swifts Creek Police Station, Detective Sergeant Mulfay says, What was your relationship with your wife like? Ronald says it was good the whole time they were in Omeo, with the exception of those times in the Parsonage kitchen and at Mr Mitchell's store when Ethel was unreasonably jealous about Lottie Condon. Detective Sergeant Mulfay gets to the heart of the inquiry as it presently stands. What was, or is, the nature of his relationship with Lottie Condon? Ronald tells them what he's just told the Methodist committee. Theirs is only a platonic friendship. Constable McMillan says he doesn't believe him. Quote, we will bring the girl down and confront you with her. The officer starts for the door, saying he's going to get the car. Detective Sergeant Mulfay stays him, saying, no, read him part of the statement. Constable McMillan produces the document and asks Ronald, do you know Lottie's signature? Ronald says he does. The officer shows him where she signed and asks if that's her mark. Ronald says it is. Constable McMillan tells him, listen. I'm Michael Adams and this is part three of the five-part Forgotten Australian miniseries, Thou Shalt Not Kill. Detective Sergeant Mulfay and Constable McMillan had just come from interviewing Lottie Condon at her family's homestead and she'd given them a detailed statement. Lottie said she'd met Ronald and Ethel Griggs in April 1926, just after they'd arrived in Omeo. Lottie had stayed at the parsonage for a weekend the following month, and then for a week around Christmas that year. During the latter visit, the kitchen incident had taken place. Ethel, Lottie told the police, quote, seemed rather jealous of my being there. She told me that she did not think that I should be there, even though she asked me to stay. Ethel had asked if anything was happening between her and Ronald. Lottie had said no. But that was a lie. The truth was, by then, she and Ronald had already been familiar. Quote, The first would be on a night when he rode to Ensay. He held church at Harmon's. This was farmer Henry Harmon. Lottie would give the date as the 17th of December. In Henry Harmon's memory, Lottie and Ronald had stayed at his place on the 5th. In any case, Lottie said of that first time with Ronald, quote, 
It was after church when we got to Harmon's. I went to his room to see him in bed. Everyone was in bed. It would be about 10.30 or 11pm. He had arranged with me to come to him before we went to bed. I stayed with him for about three or four hours. Lottie told the police that after Ronald conducted his Christmas Day services in 1926, they'd spent that night alone together for many hours, but this time didn't succumb to temptation. Soon after, they did again. This time, coming home from Casillas one night, they had intercourse. Lottie wanted to make it clear that it had been consensual. Quote, It was not by force. It was as much my fault as it was his. Then, in January, she decided to go away. This was to have an operation on her nose and then to stay with her aunt in Wagga Wagga and to have a holiday in Melbourne. Two days before she left, around the end of January, Ronald came to stay at her family's home. When everyone was asleep, she crept into his room and they were familiar for a third time. Not that she said this in her statement, and it's unknown whether the police pressed the point, but it wouldn't have been lost on them. Ronald's wife, Ethel, was that night alone in the parsonage, just days from giving birth to their first child. Lottie said that while she was in Wagga in April, Ronald had ridden his motorbike the 200 miles from Omeo to come to her. They saw each other briefly at her aunt's place and then spent the next day together. Lottie said to the police, quote, I told him that perhaps it would be better if we did not go together again. There was no intercourse between us at Wagga. Ronald returned to Omeo. This was when he'd tried to get Ethel to go to Tasmania with his mother and then changed his mind. At the end of May, a Sunday night, Lottie got back to Omeo. Ronald came to see her immediately and they renewed their intimacy. After this, she said they cooled it. Even though it was in July that Ethel had argued loudly with Ronald at the Condon place over what she suspected was going on. Maybe on this occasion, Ethel was being paranoid, or perhaps in her statement, Lottie was trying to minimise the amount of time she'd had sex with Ronald while his wife was around. In July 1927, Ethel and her baby had gone to Tasmania. In September, with his wife far away, Ronald again stayed at the Condon's homestead. Lottie, quote, he asked me to come around to his room to see him. I said that I would go, and he was familiar with me. From then on, they had sex about once a week. He'd ride down to her father's place, and they'd steal away. Other times, she'd stay in the Omeo home of John Payne, the town's butcher and its deputy coroner, who lived just down from the parsonage. Lottie would slip from the Payne house in the middle of the night to share Ronald's bed. Then, she'd creep back to the Payne place just before dawn. In November, after Ronald had sent Ethel her return fare to Omeo, he'd made Lottie an extraordinary promise about their future together. She told police. He said they could not live together anymore. Mrs. Griggs was only coming home for her things. I think that it was arranged between them that she was to come back and get her things. Griggs told me that. He said if she went back to Tasmania and things were fixed up, he was going to marry me. This was discussed by him months ago, and it was his suggestion. I think she made an application to join up again as a teacher. I'm not certain about that, but I think that is what Griggs told me. As we heard in part one, Ethel said nothing about a divorce or returning to teaching to her sister or her mother during her stay in Tasmania. Instead, she told her sister Edna she'd hoped Ronald could be weaned off Lottie Condon, and that in any case, it'd be sorted when he fulfilled his promise to leave Omeo when his posting expired in April 
and to her mother, Ethel had said that she and Ronald were probably going to be missionaries in the islands. Ethel didn't give anyone the indication she was just going back to Omeo to collect her things. Lottie told the police that on the 30th of December 1927, the day before Ethel returned, she and Ronald had an assignation at the dam on her father's property. They spent three hours together. Lottie had asked Ronald if she'd see him at a community picnic on Monday week. He'd said no, and she knew why, because Ethel was returning. Lottie next saw Ronald at Sunday services on New Year's Day. While he hadn't told anybody else in the district that Ethel was back, he told Lottie, saying she was very ill overnight and he thought it was seasickness. Two days later, on Tuesday morning, Mrs. Mitchell had called up Lottie's mother to say Ethel Griggs was dead. A week after that, Lottie had telephoned the Hilltop Hotel and, without identifying herself, asked Mr. Shanahan to get Ronald from the parsonage. Their conversation, overheard on the hotel end by Mrs. Shanahan, had been about Ronald, his mother and baby Alwyn coming to visit the Condon homestead. Lottie had wanted reassurance that Ronald's mother didn't know anything about their relationship. A week after that, the 17th of January, last night in fact, Lottie said, quote, Griggs stayed at our place and he was familiar with me. It's not recorded how Detective Sergeant Malfay and Constable McMillan responded to this. Likely, it was difficult, even for these seasoned police, to get their heads around the staggering hypocrisy. Ronald Griggs, his wife two weeks in the grave, increasingly a pariah in his parish, had last night sought shelter with and support from his friend John Condon. He'd looked the man in the eye to deny impropriety with his daughter. John had vowed to do everything he could to defend Ronald, putting his money and his reputation on the line. Then, when the lights went out, Ronald had once more had sex with Lottie Condon. But being an adulterer, a liar and a hypocrite didn't make him a murderer. So far, nothing Lottie had said implicated Ronald in his wife's death beyond giving him a motive, being with her. But that changed when Lottie told them she knew that Ronald had studied chemistry and that her father kept poisons on his property, which Ronald had the run of every time he stayed. Yet she didn't believe this made him a killer. Quote, I have never seen Griggs with poison and I have never heard him say that he would poison his wife. I have never given Griggs any poison of any kind. Just as we can only imagine how the police officers reacted to her revelations, we can only imagine Ronald's face as the relevant excerpts from this statement were read aloud to him by Constable McMillan. When the officer was finished, he simply asked, Is that true? Ronald said yes. It was true. All of it. Except, he never said he studied chemistry, though he might have mentioned an interest in the subject. Ronald signed a statement corroborating Lottie's confession. He appears to that night have gone back to the parsonage. Even he wasn't bold enough to go back to John Condon's place at Tongio Gap. As for Detective Sergeant Mulfay and Constable McMillan, they had much to discuss. Lottie's confession and Ronald's confirmation justified treating this as a murder investigation. Motive, means and opportunity. Ronald Griggs had all three. Motive. He could only remain a man of the cloth and marry Lottie Condon if his wife was dead. Means. He'd had the run of the Condon property where poisons were kept. Opportunity. 
for almost the entire 52 hours from arriving home until the moment she died, the only person who'd been with Ethel was Ronald. Detective Sergeant Malfay and Constable McMillan came to interview Ronald again the following morning at the parsonage. He was to tell them that Ethel had threatened to commit suicide one night, this being the time she'd supposedly asked about the rope in the shed. He told of her going to Tasmania, of her not writing at first, but then saying she felt much better. He gave them his version of Ethel's sickness, his, the doctor's and Mrs. Mitchell's attempts to care for her and how he'd found her dead in her bed. Then Ronald said, quote, I know that my wife must have taken poison. He was to claim that this statement had been in response to the police saying that Ethel's death was suspicious because it was so sudden. The police were to say that he'd kind of said it out of the blue. In their version, Detective Sergeant Malfay asked Ronald why he thought Ethel had taken poison, and he said because she died so quickly. Asked where she would have gotten poison, Ronald said, quote, She knew where I always kept it in the shed. Ronald was talking about strychnine he'd bought the previous year and which was still in his possession. For reasons that'll soon be made clear, Detective Sergeant Malfay breezed past this asking, did you have arsenic or any other poisons in the house when your wife returned? Ronald said, no. Detective Sergeant Malfay, did you find any poison in the house during your wife's illness? No. Don't you think you would find the remains of the poison if she had done so? Ronald said, yes. The detective asked, did she tell you at any time during her illness she had taken poison? No. Did she return home in good spirits? Yes. As for the poisons Ronald had bought, he said about 12 months ago he'd obtained strychnine and prussic acid in Bansdale. The strychnine was to kill rats that might eat a delivery of chaff he was expecting and also to kill rabbits who'd been eating the vegetables in the parsonage garden. As for the prussic acid, that had been for a stray dog that had been hanging around the property. As things turned out, the rats and the rabbits hadn't been the problem he'd imagined, so he hadn't used the strychnine. The stray dog, meanwhile, had left of its own accord, so Ronald had poured out the prussic acid, which he'd been told was dangerous to keep, and he'd then thrown away the bottle. Searching the property, the police took the strychnine and the remains of the liquid medicine that Dr. Matthew had prescribed. But Ethel had taken or thrown up all of the four powders, so these wouldn't be able to be tested. The police also found a bottle that Ronald couldn't account for. It was labelled Blood of Peaches, and it contained three ounces of unidentified liquid. Detective Sergeant Malfay was to take all of this evidence to Melbourne for analysis. While Ronald had confirmed the truth of Lottie's claims, he also told police they'd first been intimate at the end of January. This falsehood appeared to be his attempt to save some face. By shifting the first date, he made himself seem a little less to blame, framing Ethel as an unreasonably jealous woman whose hysteria had, ironically, driven him into the arms of the girl she feared. Regardless, Ronald knew things looked black for him, telling the police, quote, I admit that the death of my wife looks suspicious, but I have in no way been the cause of it. Yet, much of what Ronald said was self-incriminating. Over more than 48 hours, he admitted to preparing and giving Ethel cups of tea, glasses of water, packets of powders, teaspoons of medicine, and a little food. Ronald told police that Ethel had even said to him on the Monday afternoon, quote, If you love me, do not give me any more of that medicine. Would a guilty man actually admit these things? 
Ronald could easily have said that Ethel had done many or all of those things for herself. There was no one to contradict him, and it would have supported what he was saying about her taking poison. By the time Ronald gave this second interview to police, the newspapers were all over the story. Reporters knew about the Methodist committee the previous night and Ronald's refusal to resign, even if they didn't know or didn't publish exactly what it had been about. Read between the headlines, though, and it was clear this was shaping up to be a major murder scandal. Sydney's The Sun went with, Resign! Churchman's demand! Minister refuses! Young wife's death! The Herald in Melbourne told readers Ronald had been interviewed earlier that day by police. Ethel's body was almost certain to be exhumed. Once Detective Sergeant Malfay officially requested this and the Attorney General gave the order. Ronald Griggs had already had to answer to the Methodist Committee and to the police. Now he found himself confronted by reporters. From Melbourne's Herald, quote, Later in the morning, Mr Griggs was waited upon by press representatives and asked for particulars of his wife's illness and death. He informed them with an air of finality that he had absolutely nothing to say. Ronald might have been keeping quiet in the press, but Detective Sergeant Malfay had plenty to say to his superiors at Melbourne CIB, and this was immediately leaked to the newspapers. Detective Sergeant Malfay believed Ethel Griggs had been murdered with poison. The Labor Daily in Sydney the next morning went with the headline, Poison Theory Accepted, Minister's Wife, Small Town Talk, Mystery at Omeo. This article said that Detective Sergeant Malfay was, quote, not inclined at present, however, to make any definite charge against the person who he suspects of the crime. What hadn't yet made headlines was Ronald's adultery with Lottie. This was on his mind the next day when the police interviewed him again at the parsonage. Detective Sergeant Malfay told Ronald the latest thing he'd learned. And in his phrasing of it, we can kind of hear his disbelief. Quote, it was only this morning that I was told you and Miss Condon were on horseback riding along the public highway, you with your arm around her waist and kissing her. To which Ronald said, yes, I lost my head. Ronald asked, quote, if there were poison found in my wife's body when it is raised, would that statement I made be made known at the inquest? By this he meant his confession to adultery with Lottie. Detective Sergeant Malfay said that it would. Ronald replied, I would not have told you that if the girl had not done so. Here he was admitting that if Lottie hadn't told the truth, he would have continued to lie to the men sitting across from him, the men inquiring into the death of his own wife, the inquiry that, however reluctantly, he had officially requested. Detective Sergeant Malfay left for Bansdale to see the chemist who'd sold Ronald the poisons last year. What he was doing here was pretty much due diligence. Both he and Constable McMillan knew that Ethel Griggs hadn't been killed with strychnine. Back in 1915, Detective Sergeant Mulfay had been partnered with soon-to-be cop legend Frederick Piggott when that investigated a case in which a mural bark orchardist had come home to find his house had been burgled and many valuables stolen. This man made himself a cup of tea, added sugar, had a few sips and collapsed in convulsions. The sugar in his house was found to have been poisoned with strychnine by the man who'd broken into the place. The victim survived. The point was, a strong dose of strychnine caused very obvious symptoms. 
10 to 20 minutes after being ingested, spasms began and they soon became continuous convulsions that arched the back as the limbs stiffened. Those who died from strychnine poisoning died of asphyxiation as the body shut down or before that from simple exhaustion due to the convulsions. Corpses of strychnine victims were often so arched and fixed they were compared with sawhorses. And though Omeo was no hotbed of crime, Constable McMillan had also experience with this sort of poisoning. In early August 1926, a 65-year-old labourer had been discovered dead in his bed in a work hut. Constable McMillan had been the one to find the bottle of strychnine under the man's mattress. So if Ethel Griggs had been poisoned this way, even the dullest doctor would have known immediately. The same went for prussic acid, which is a type of cyanide. Two or so grains of this poison could kill a person in three minutes. Before death, the victim would suffer headache, confusion, laboured breathing, seizure and unconsciousness. Their heart rate might be erratic and their skin cold and clammy. It also left the smell of bitter almonds. Again, not consistent with ethyl symptoms. While Detective Sergeant Mulfay was in Bansdale, Truth Newspaper published the longest account yet of the mystery, based on the work its reporter did in Omeo during the week. This included that certain rumours about Ronald Griggs had been doing the rounds, and that on Wednesday night the police had interviewed him and a young woman. The article said he'd been accused of indecorous behaviour at the Methodist committee meeting, but had survived their censure. Truce man had knocked on the parsonage door on Thursday. Ronald opened it a foot, said he was too busy with church matters to talk, and besides, he had nothing to say. But before he closed the door, Truce man saw enough to write the minister had, quote, doffed his clerical attire and was dressed in tweeds. Detective Sergeant Malfay returned to Melbourne on Monday evening and gave his report to Superintendent Coatsfeld, who passed it on to the Chief Commissioner, Brigadier General Thomas Blamey. He passed it to the Attorney-General, who consulted with Crown Law authorities, including Crown Solicitor Frank Menzies, who'd direct the case, and whose younger brother Robert was then a lawyer getting into politics. The Attorney-General gave the order. Ethel Griggs was to be exhumed. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the morning of the 25th of January, Detective Sergeant Malfay and the government pathologist, Dr Crawford Henry Mollison, left Melbourne. The doctor, then 64, according to Smith's Weekly, still had the nickname Baby, given to him years ago on account of his cherubic features. Others called him Molly. Dr Mollison, Baby or Molly, whatever you called him, he'd seen and done things to turn most grown men a sick shade of green. By 1928, he'd been conducting autopsies for more than half his life. Those who'd been on his slab included most Victorian murder victims, dating back to at least 1892, when he'd assisted in the investigation of serial killer Frederick Deeming. 
Dr. Mollison's most recent celebrity corpses had been those dueling gangsters, with his scalpel work concluding that Squizzy Taylor had been hit by one bullet while he'd managed to put four into Snowy Cutmore. Now Dr. Mollison took with him to Omeo the tools of his trade, along with three big glass jars given to him by the government's analyst. Early the next morning in Omeo Cemetery, Detective Sergeant Mulfay and Dr. Mollison met with Constable McMillan, Dr. Langford and Bansdale's coroner and presiding magistrate, Frederick Bond. In Ronald's first letter to Mrs. White, he described Ethel's burial place as a beautiful spot. Maybe it had been, but not this morning when a lone gravedigger got to work on Plot 47. As for Ronald that morning, he was staying at the home of John Condon, as he had been for several days reportedly at the request of police who feared for Ronald's safety if he stayed in Omeo. It's not clear at this stage whether John knew that his daughter and the man he was protecting and defending had confessed to police that they'd carried out an adulterous affair under his nose and in his home. With Ethel's coffin raised, her body was removed and placed on an improvised table. Though swollen and discoloured with decomposition, her features were recognisable and her body and organs intact. Dr. Mollison got to work, removing Ethel's heart, kidneys, liver, spleen, stomach and intestines, placing these organs into the jars which were sealed and labelled. What remained of Ethel was returned to her resting place. At Omeo's little brick courthouse, Mr. Bond opened the inquest. He briefly took evidence from Constable McMillan that he'd known Ethel and that the woman whose body had just been exhumed was she. The magistrate adjourned the inquest pending the results from the government analyst in Melbourne. Detective Sergeant Mulfay and Dr. Mollison were back in Melbourne by the following afternoon. The obvious question, would poison be present in Ethel's organs? If so, had she been killed or had she killed herself? Smith's Weekly was snapping at the heels of Detective Sergeant Mulfay, with one of its reporters interviewing Charles Wade, the Bansdale chemist who said he'd sold strychnine and prussic acid to Ronald Griggs on the 3rd of March last year. Mr Griggs had given his pest eradication reasons for this purchase, and he'd signed the poison book as required by law. Smith's Weekly knew what the police did about these substances and why they wouldn't be found in Ethel's body. The paper confidently said that the government analysts would be looking for evidence of arsenic or antimony, metallic poisons that cause symptoms consistent with what Ethel had suffered before she died. Either poison was easily detectable post-mortem, and Smith wagered that it would take an hour at most for their presence to be confirmed. The man doing this work was government analyst Charles Anthony Taylor. His nickname was The Cat, for both his initials and his ability to pounce on evidence that convicted crooks. Born in 1885, the cat had graduated Melbourne University in 1914 and by the early 1920s was Victoria's assistant government analyst. He'd made his name when he confirmed that hairs found on a blanket belonging to wine bar owner Colin Campbell Ross were identical to those taken from Alma Turchke, the 12-year-old schoolgirl who'd been raped and murdered and dumped in a Melbourne city alley. The crime and trial were a sensation. 
Cat's evidence ensured Colin Ross was hanged, despite his gallows protests of innocence, which, three quarters of a century later, would be confirmed by DNA testing of those hairs, resulting in Colin Ross being the only legally executed person in Australia to receive a posthumous exoneration and pardon. But in 1928, Cat's reputation wasn't in question, particularly when it came to poison cases. Three years earlier, in February 1925, he testified in a trial in which a man allegedly poisoned his wife with arsenic in milky tea. Ten minutes after finishing it, she became really sick but was taken to hospital by a boarder in their house and she survived. Cat testified he'd found arsenic in the tea remnants in the cup that the husband had handed to his wife before he left for work. There were 1.2 grains of the poison, which was about half of what it would take to kill a normal healthy man. More traces were found in the teapot and in a bottle found on the premises. But what this didn't tell Cat was how much arsenic had actually been swallowed. Arsenic is white like sugar, flour or milk, tasteless and odourless. It's not very soluble in cold water, but water that's at the temperature used to make tea is far more effective. Even so, Grains yet to dissolve might be seen in black tea. Add milk and you had an effective way to poison somebody. Do it slowly with smaller doses over a longer period and a victim would slowly sicken and perish as the poison destroyed their organs. Larger doses would work quicker, hours maybe, days more likely, and might mimic a severe stomach illness that brought on exhaustion followed by heart failure. Cat wasn't able to test for long-term doses as there'd be much absorption and repulsion. The amount a person died from was also hard to judge. When swallowed, arsenic is both absorbed and causes vomiting that expels unabsorbed arsenic. Nine grains, three times the fatal dose, might see a victim absorb one and vomit up the rest. Provided you weren't dosed again, you'd likely be fine in a day or two poisoned again soon and you'd be violently ill after a period of apparent recovery. You'd also then be closer to dying from a fatal amount of arsenic being absorbed into your system. In Kat's 1925 case, the court heard the accused had deserted his wife, shacked up with another woman and had when ordered to pay his wife maintenance threatened to throw her off a bridge. The jury acquitted, the judge concurring that the evidence wasn't very strong. That was the thing about such cases. Cat could prove that poison was in a cup or in a body, but that didn't prove beyond reasonable doubt who had put it there. Finding arsenic in a corpse was easy for a man of Cat's talents, yet as January came to a close, newspapers reported that the police were still awaiting the government analyst report. Cat didn't seem to be pouncing so much as plotting. The truth was he'd known within 10 minutes. According to Smith's Weekly, he said of his findings, Traces be damned, loads of it, enough to kill a dozen people. Cat had found 15 and a half grains in Ethel's organs, just under 7 grains in her stomach, and just under 7 grains in her large intestine. On paper, that was enough to kill the average size family. And those 15 and a half grains didn't account for the arsenic that Ethel had thrown up during those two days she was violently ill, or the arsenic that she'd absorbed that had actually killed her. The short version was Ethel Griggs had been given or taken a massive dose of arsenic. 
In Dr. Mollison's opinion, the fact that large amounts of arsenic had been found in her stomach and in her large intestine suggested that Ethel had swallowed at least two big doses at different times. This, he thought, made it highly improbable that she had committed suicide, particularly as the arsenic in her stomach was likely swallowed just hours before she died. This, by her husband's account, was when she'd been desperately ill, bedridden and in his care. The police knew arsenic had killed Ethel Griggs, but the CIB kept this quiet to allow other parts of the investigation to proceed. To convict Ronald Griggs of murder, the Crown had to rule out reasonable doubt as best they could. To this end, two detectives were then in Tasmania, piecing together Ethel's moods and movements over the six months leading up to her death. Specifically, they were trying to find out if she talked about suicide or bought or had access to arsenic. Legally, this case was still unfolding. Religiously, it was over. The local Methodist elders suspended Ronald, pending a hearing by the Methodist Conference in Melbourne that would surely rule against him. Ronald Jeeves Griggs' long-held dream of being a minister was over. When he'd last spoken to the police, Ronald had expressed the hope that his liaison with Lottie might stay secret. So, he had to wish the earth would open and swallow him up when, on the last weekend in January, truth ran the story front page across the country. The scandal sheet knew everything and painted it as colourfully as was then possible. Though sensational, the three to 4,000 word articles which ran across Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Perth editions were also pretty much accurate. They contained the details of Lottie's statements and evidence from other witnesses, meaning that the paper was being fed by police sources close to, or indeed running, the investigation. Melbourne's truth hasn't been digitised for this period, but other city editions certainly give us the gist. Sydney's headline was, Illicit love of Rev. Ronald Griggs, married clergyman's secret passion for young country girl, confession of preacher who denounced vice. Brisbane Truth went with Rev R. Griggs, hypocrite, fractures seventh commandment, contemptible liaison with pretty parishioner. He promised to marry me when his wife left him. Body of Mrs. Griggs exhumed. Back in 1928, about four in five Australians identified as Christian. Church attendance was huge. What else was there to do on Sundays? Pubs, cinemas, dance halls, everything was closed. And it was in this world that Ronald Griggs had overnight gone from man of the cloth to confessed adulterer and suspected murderer. But officially, at least, the cat was still on the mat while detectives did their work in Tasmania. When they returned to Melbourne at the end of January, it was to report that Ethel Griggs had not seemed suicidal to anyone she came into contact with during the second half of 1927. Quite the opposite and there was no record of her obtaining arsenic. The investigation into the death of Ethel Griggs had reached a tipping point. On Wednesday the 1st of February, Detective Sergeant Malfay set out from Melbourne for East Gippsland. This time, he'd been given a motor car. Not just for speed, but for secrecy. If he took the train, it'd be in the afternoon papers. And if the accused knew that he was coming, he might try to cheat the hangman. At nightfall, Detective Sergeant Malfay had reached Swift's Creek, and there he called Constable McMillan to make plans for tomorrow. Despite the police's attempts at secrecy, the Bush Telegraph was buzzing with the news that Detective Sergeant Malfay was in the district. 
The following morning, just after nine, when he and Constable McMillan arrived at the Condon homestead, they were greeted by the fully dressed Ronald Griggs, who reportedly said, I heard you were coming today. Detective Sergeant Malfay interviewed Ronald for about an hour. John Condon was also questioned about the poisons that Lottie had mentioned in her statement, and he showed the police where he kept his 80 or so pounds of arsenic in the woolshed and the blacksmith's shop. He said that Ronald had had the run of his place and had spent time in these spots. At around 11 o'clock, Detective Sergeant Mulfay arrested Ronald, and then he and Constable McMillan drove him to Omeo, the accused sitting pale-faced between these two police officers. By the time they reached the town, every shop door and veranda held curious onlookers. At Omeo Police Station, Ronald told his story one more time. Ethel had been sick upon arriving from Tasmania. He'd given her tea and bread and butter and she'd vomited again. After that, despite the doctor's medicine, she just kept getting sicker. Ronald said it was true he'd had the run of Mr Condon's house and that he'd been in the woolshed and the blacksmith shop but he denied knowing arsenic was kept there, and he denied poisoning his wife. Ronald was briefly taken to the lockup and lodged there until 2 o'clock, when Constable McMillan escorted him the short distance to Omeo's little court, Ronald staring straight ahead as they made their way between groups of glaring residents. Two local JPs were sufficient to hear the charge read by Detective Sergeant Mulfay, hear a brief of police evidence, and order a week's remand. Now officially charged with his wife's murder, Ronald Griggs was taken back to Omeo's lockup. As the sun set behind the mountains that night, he'd gone from living a respectable life in the town's comfortable parsonage to languishing in a colonial cage that had been built to hold cattle duffers, sheep stealers, and cold-blooded bushrangers. Omeo's lockup was a cell built around 1863 from whole rough-hewn logs. More than 150 years later, tourists are amazed by this colonial relic and have their smiling photos taken behind the iron bars of its grilled door. But on the night of the 2nd of February 1928, the confessed adulterer and accused wife killer stood there imprisoned in the middle of the town he'd betrayed and outraged. Omeo's lockup had been built to last and it had been built to keep men in. But could it keep them out? With the town's blood running high, Constable McMillan feared that Ronald Griggs might be lynched by a vigilante mob before he ever saw the inside of a courtroom. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part three of the five-part Forgotten Australia miniseries, Thou Shalt Not Kill. Part four will be released soon, but if you'd like to hear the rest of the story right now and see photos and newspaper articles from this case, all five instalments are available to Forgotten Australia supporters. Supporters also get access to bonus episodes, and at the end of this show, you'll be able to hear the first 10 minutes of the latest exclusive episode, Detective McRae versus The Lady in Grey. If Thou Shalt Not Kill is like an Agatha Christie mystery, then this two-parter plays like a hard-boiled Australian film noir, complete with compromised cop, adulterous young beauty, scheming husband, and private investigator who specialises in breaking down hotel room doors. To support Forgotten Australia, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for your support. 
It's Saturday, the 14th of September, 1957, and Australia is changing fast. Arriving at Sydney Airport, American singer Johnny Ray is mobbed by teenage girls who are obsessed with the ever more popular musical fad of rock and roll. They come from another world. Space creatures are taking over humans, at least in cinemas, in the new sci-fi movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds. Your memories. But more and more, Australians don't even have to leave their lounge rooms to have their minds zapped. Good evening and welcome to television. Now that television has been with us for a year. Even the backyard's not the same, with Victor's brand new lawnmower model able to think for itself thanks to the revolutionary Predictor Automatic Accelerator. On this Saturday, the future's so bright you've got to wear shades. And that goes double if you're at Maralinga in South Australia when the British detonate their latest atomic bomb. But in his home in the eastern Sydney suburb of Kingsford, a tall, stooped and sickly senior citizen isn't looking forwards to the bright future. He's looking back in anger at the dark past. He can't forget what happened and he's still out for justice. But this isn't your garden variety geezer nursing some ancient grudge. This old bloke is a former ace detective, and he's not going to rest until he closes his last case. Exonerating an innocent man, that's been his life's work since he left the New South Wales Police Force. Today, talking to a reporter for the Sun-Herald newspaper, this bespectacled and craggy character claims he's uncovered vital fresh evidence that'll bust this case wide open. Quote, I will not stop fighting until I get justice. I get justice. He's not out to clear someone else. He's out to clear his own name. For the past 17 years, since 1940, former Detective Sergeant Thomas McRae, once famous for investigating many of Australia's most sensational murders, has been trying to prove that he was the victim of a conspiratorial frame-up. A frame-up that cast him as an adulterous creep in a divorce case that scandalised the entire country. A frame-up that cost him his career. A frame-up that's ruined his health, his finances, and his life. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia bonus episode, Detective McRae vs. The Lady in Grey. Part two is going to be released in early June. Thomas Walter McRae was born on the 31st of August, 1886, in Strathalban in South Australia. He came east to Sydney and in 1911 joined the New South Wales Police Force. Also that year, Thomas married an Albury woman named Mildred House. She was nearly five years his senior. From 1912, Constable McRae was stationed in Cooma, where he and his wife were active in the Presbyterian Church. When not policing, Thomas competed in rifle shooting events and sang with the local male chorus musical society. He was transferred to Queanbeyan in 1916 and then to Eden on the far south coast a year later. Thomas was working there on the 6th of July 1917 when the four-masted steamer SS Cumberland, about 10 miles out to sea, became the first ship to ever fall victim to an enemy mine in Australian waters. Laid by the German raider Wolf, this mine ripped through the Cumberland's hold and left a hole in its side. The crippled vessel beached at Gabo Island, where some of its cargo washed ashore and was soon after pinched by a trio of fishermen. Their ill-gotten gains included tins of dripping and tins of preserved rabbit. Constable McRae was on the case. 
he motored out to Gabo Island and got a confession from one of the crooks that led to him and his mates being convicted and fined. It wasn't like Constable McRae had caught Jack the Ripper, but his work was solid enough to bring him to the attention of police bosses up in Sydney. In April 1918, Thomas was promoted to Constable Second Class and transferred to the little village of Burrenjuk in the Riverina. In late 1920, the up-and-comer was promoted to Constable First Class and transferred to the main game, Sydney. He'd now work in plain clothes and be based at the number one police station in Clarence Street, alongside another rising star, future police commissioner Billy Mackay. Thomas and Mildred lived in Clovelly and they had a daughter named Joyce. When she was born isn't known, nor is it known how she died in 1922. But what is known is that this loss hit Mildred very hard. She reportedly became deranged and on the 8th of March 1923 was found on rocks by the sea near the McRae home. Mildred was partially dressed in wet clothes as if she'd been in the water. The next day, Mildred rose before dawn, went into the kitchen, turned on the oven's gas jets and lay down to die. The coronial inquest found she'd committed suicide and there's no suggestion it was anything else. Yet it is possible her despair might not have only been over her daughter's death. Thomas McRae was to later say that while Mildred was still alive, he'd known a single woman who lived nearby. The nature of that relationship then is not known, but in 1923, after Mildred died, Thomas had become lost with this lady friend in French's forest. How, why, and for how long they were lost, or what this really meant, wasn't revealed. But his police bosses took a dim view of the matter. After Thomas made a report about his absence, he was put back into uniform, which cut his pay because he no longer received the plain clothes allowance. Thomas would say that after the incident, he spent two months in hospital. The way he said it, it sounded like some sort of breakdown rather than physical illness or injury. Constable Thomas McRae didn't get his next promotion until October of 1928 when he was made Detective Sergeant Third Class. Career back on track, a year later his photo made the newspapers when he busted a middle-aged man and a young woman who'd conspired to blackmail a businessman by falsely accusing him of rape. His other cases in 1929 included an interstate abduction, a street robbery, a razor slashing and the strangulation murder of a vagrant woman. That killer was never found. And, though he hadn't been able to help solve that case, Detective Sergeant McRae was soon famous as a homicide detective. Against seemingly insurmountable odds, his sleuthing led to the Bungendor bones being identified in 1931. During 1932 and into early 1933, Detective Sergeant McRae investigated numerous homicides and was responsible for the arrest of Eric Craig, who'd be convicted for the Sydney killings of Bessie O'Connor and May Miller. At the end of that year, Detective Sergeant McRae led the investigation that, in astonishing circumstances, saw a human skin glove identified as belonging to Wagga Wagga murder victim Percy Smith, with his murderer Edward Morey then arrested and sentenced to life behind bars. We've heard about those cases in previous episodes of Forgotten Australia. Detective Sergeant McRae, though, worked many others. In June 1933, he'd arrested Claude Wallace and Eric Newland over the shooting death of John Rowland during a Bondi Street robbery. These two were convicted of manslaughter and both got life sentences. 
In November 1935, Detective Sergeant McRae investigated the murder of Montague Henwood, veteran industrial advocate and the state's conciliation commissioner, after he was beaten and thrown from a train in the Blue Mountains. It wasn't long before Detective Sergeant McRae was taking the confession of 17-year-old Edwin John Hickey, who'd be hanged for the crime the following May. McRae told the court of the shocking state of the body when found, of the blood-stained towel and burnt sack in which it had been encased. Of course, Detective Sergeant McRae's most famous case was that of the Pajama Girl, whose shot, bashed and burned body was found in a culvert near Albury in September 1934. Excitement mounted higher as McRae continued his evidence. He, with other members of the department, had carefully examined the entire locality before removing the body. While Detective Sergeant McRae and his colleagues had done sterling work in such cases before, this woman's identity had remained a mystery despite extraordinary efforts. In pursuance of McRae's suggestion, the body was embalmed and taken to Sydney University where it was placed in a formal bath, a permanent though slender hope of identification. Despite public pressure to solve the Pajama Girl case, Detective Sergeant McRae had a fine reputation and, over the 1930s, had been promoted to Detective Sergeant First Class. His next promotion, to the rank of Inspector, was expected in the early 1940s. While his first marriage had ended in a double tragedy, Thomas had seemingly found domestic happiness again when, in 1932, he married a divorcee named Jean Harrison. They lived at first in Ranwick and then in Kingsford. Jean would say that Thomas was a workaholic who lived for his job, and when he did take time off, you'd usually find him playing golf at the nearby East Lakes course. Throughout the 1930s, Detective Sergeant McRae was often in the newspapers, with wife Jean keeping a scrapbook of articles about his adventures. The story went that one year his photo had appeared in 32 of 52 editions of a Sydney weekly paper but such prominence was only fitting for a man whose major cases regularly saw him confront some of the country's most cold-blooded criminals. This made it bitterly ironic that his greatest press fame, by an order of magnitude, came as a result of him being assigned to a minor investigation not into a criminal, but into a fellow Sydney copper. Frida Agnes Caesar was a blue-eyed brunette bombshell. If she'd been born in America and had caught a lucky break or two, she might have been cast as a tragic heroine, or a femme fatale, or both, in a Hollywood film noir. Instead, Frida came into the world as Frida Agnes Smith in September 1915 in the tiny northwestern New South Wales town of Bogabri. Her father, Walter, was a police constable. Like the McCrays, they moved to where he was from. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.